How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Setting Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Jade, and this is Future Setting. So, um, for those of us who are searching for wild in the city, today's conversation is going to interest you no end. I'm talking with Professor Dieter, how do I say your surname? Hoculi or Hochuli if you want the Swiss. (laughs) I do want it but I wouldn't do it justice. Hoculi, Professor Dieter Hoculi is working on a project called the Urban Field Naturalist Project and it's a project that encourages all of us to get curious about our urban surrounds and I think the reason I love this is because even though um, I'm based in the bush and even though lots of the things we talk about on Future Steading often feel like they are more regionally centred, the vast majority of us live in the city. And so let's be honest, we actually need to find ways for, for us to learn and relearn that deep connection to the natural world. So this is magnificent. You're based in Sydney. Yes. And this is a project that's just begun. Um. Yeah, the project started around March 2020 with a conversation with some colleagues just about um, things that live in cities because that, that aligns with the research that I do. So that's sort of one of the interests that, that came to me. And then with a bit of time, um, lockdown happened really, really quickly after that. And a whole lot of things just coalesced where myself, um, a bird ecologist, John Martin, um, a field philosopher, Tom Van Doren, who's here at uni, and two designers from the University of Technology, Sydney, um, Zodi. Um, Zoe, Zoe Sadakirsky and Andrew Burrell got together and we started putting together a, an option for people to share stories. So it's, it really grew under lockdown. And like you just mentioned, um, you know, a lot of people do live in cities, but what really was clear when you were when people were limited, um, in the case of places like a lot of Sydney and Melbourne, you were limited to a, a five-kilometre radius of your home, mm-hmm. is that people started to discover their own environment. So I wouldn't say it was a lucky accident, but it was an accident that led to a lot of people, I think, showing a lot more interest in, in, in what we'd call nearby nature or everyday nature. And, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, we think of nature, we think of the bush, and we think of you know, the regions and the, some of the spectacular country um, you know, that is Australia. But one of the things that, you know, for a lot of people, their, their, their exposure to nature is the local park with some exotic and native plants, maybe some birds that are uh, perhaps not the most special birds are the ones that are able to make a living in cities. So, yeah, the project just started and, and it grew from um, people sharing stories on a platform that we built on the web through to an opportunity to write the book and really try and, um, I suppose, inject a bit of ourselves into into the book and our, our personalities to, and, and try to do a couple of things. One of them was um, probably not just to tell people about nature but give people um some things to do when they went out to it. So that's part of the, the thinking too. Mm. Um, yeah. So there's a, few, there's a whole lot of stuff in there. The fact that there's five of you on this is really exciting and it's really um, it's really visible or noticeable and clear in the book because of the breadth of 
of information in the book. No one individual who lives in a city would be able to compile the the amount of information that's in it. It's so wide ranging that it really can speak to lots of different climates in lots of different places. And, and that really does mean that the sum of the parts has resulted in an outcome that is much richer than it would have been if any one of you attempted it on your own. Yeah, I think it's one of those really hard things to, to realise that, you know, a lot of us don't like group work sometimes. I speak to my students here at uni, they, they you know, if you ask them do they prefer to do individual projects or group projects, it's a, often an answer they prefer the individual ones. But one of the beauties of the, of, of the group work is you get to look at the world or get perspectives that are really different you, and you see people looking at the world through different lenses and bringing different um, expertise to the project was really critical. And one of the things that just leapt out was just, how important it was that we were a bit open to um, yeah, other ways of doing things, really, because I think, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, at my vintage, you get very fixed in your thinking and your way of doing things, and just it's really exciting to 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 see what happens when you open up a little bit and you try different things, and you you, you know that you hear the different voices. Like it's it's, it's there, there there wasn't a bit of editing to try and bring it together, and there's some really common themes in what we do, but um. There were really, yeah, there certainly weren't arguments, but there's certainly conversations about a range of different things. Um, a good example will be our field philosopher Tom and I differ with respects to um, the combative nature of, of nature. I'm, I'm really enthused and interested in things like predation and competition, and I like the way that animals and plants um, work those things out. But as he's, you know, but having said that, that you know, competition and predation result in losers um you know some animals and plants lose out big time with that um tom tom sort of opened my eyes to a lot of i suppose a more collaborative approach and looked at probably being a bit um, more into the cooperation parts of it and talking about some of the the less what is it red and tooth and claw parts of nature and it was really good for me to do that because i think sometimes yeah you do get fixed in your, in your way of thinking about things jade so um yeah and that was that was one of the things that came out and then you know in terms of the the creative people we got to work with, that was was mind-blowing for me. I think as a scientist, you can get very fixed in your perspectives and you can get very fixed in your, your way of thinking mm-hmm. and you can assume you know how to do stuff and just seeing what, what happened when they applied their, their disciplinary expertise and their enthusiasm to nature with some of the things that we could, we could do. It was just, you know, it was just a really wonderful experience to be a part of and, and I, I know they feel the same too. It was, we were able to share stories about the animals and plants we share our cities with that they were you know we take i take them for granted and i just realized that um you know we haven't done a very good job sharing our stories and that's one of the reasons we're very keen to you know do the project write the book and and talk to anyone who's willing to listen Mm. um i would love to know and you said it a minute ago when you've written the book you've also bought really practical ways for people to actually get into a, a natural environment. And you gave a few examples, but even more simplistically, it could be your nature strip or your balcony. I mean, it doesn't actually even need to be the local park or the, the nearby river. It, it could be even, it's just the it's the mindset of observation and the mindset of, of curiosity and engagement that the book does a beautiful job of spurring. And so I think that's that's one of the things that all of us can probably learn from what role do you think creativity and storytelling play in the way we interact with our surroundings well there's a lot to unpack in those two words creativity and storytelling i'll start with the creativity i think one of my great frustrations as the scientist is when the creative people don't tell us tell us that science isn't creative it's an inherently creative activity 
Um, we, we, some of it's intellectually creative, but sometimes it's also um, more classically creative. And I think one of the things that came out is that um, there's a part of science that is creative that we need to sell and talk about more. And it's not so much about the facts we find out, but it's about the way that we do things. And I think for too long we've probably spoken about science as a, a bit of a noun or a thing where we, we, we <laughs> tell you what we know. Yeah. But we very rarely tell you what we do. And I think that's been one of the things that, that, that's crept up. Um, that we should, we need to treat science as it's a verb. It's you know, it, or you know, it's it's a, a doing. Of, now I'm taking it back to my primary school education. <laughs> verb, doing words. Well, but we um, mostly had all had that, so we can all relate. Yeah. So, um, and, but then the other part about the creativity was um, just working with people who are skilled and trained and have lived their life learning how to share things creatively. Just opened up a new world of, of trying to. Um, a new world of trying to tell our stories slightly differently. And and I think one of the, you know, the things that's come out through um, conversations about climate change or vaccinations or, you know, bushfires, we probably don't have very good public conversations about science sometimes. And realising that there's an urgent need for those of us that do science to share it more effectively is really obvious to me because we're not reaching certain audiences and certain people we need to find better ways to communicate it and so seeing how, how they brought these stories to life was really important now the storytelling part I mean you know I think a lot of our writing is essentially storytelling even in the, the most dry and boring of scientific papers we still work a narrative the bit that's probably really critical for this project was that we wanted to see and hear the stories from people that were doing what you said before observing the nature on you know nearby nature or whatever the stuff they were seeing around them because one of the things that happened again with lockdown is that instead of going from from a to b you know we were stuck at a and had to find ways to amuse ourselves there and one of the things about being a a naturalist or doing that kind of work is sometimes you know my, my my day job often requires me to slow down and and just um stare at flowers to, to look at the floral, the floral visitors and the pollinators or um, sometimes with birds it involves sitting in the place and, 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 and just watching and observing. And you realise sometimes when your, your outside activity is geared around, you know, you know, not unreasonably moving around and doing things, you do miss seeing things. Sometimes when you stop and watch, you know, things come to you. And that's been really interesting in terms of seeing people, you know, share some insights into the animal's and particularly the animals that they've seen and, and what they're doing, because it's really we, we probably focus an awful lot when, again with naturalist stuff on learning the names of things and and saying what's this, what's that, but we probably haven't spent enough time talking about um, what they do and why it's interesting, and and, and half, a lot of the time that's where the really fascinating things come in, and that spins all the way to um, citizen science and getting people to share their observations in various ways. But you asked about creativity and storytelling, I think. You know, I think trying to sell the creativity in science is important. Learning that there are some unbelievably talented people that can teach us how to be far more creative in sharing those stories if we co-design and collaborate with them was really important. And um, you know, look, storytelling was essentially—I think it's part of our—you know—it's it's part of the traditions of you know, you look at you know the longest, the oldest living society on the planet. You know, First Nations folk in Australia, you've got storytelling in a range of ways being fundamental and that's that's part of the human condition all over the world and I think just um getting better at telling our stories is something I think and this is everyone 
we, we do well to, to get better at them and, and, and just even just wanting to share them. I think sometimes you don't realise who's potentially going to be interested until you try and share it. That's right. You need to have these conversations. Do you know the other thing that I thought as I was reading through the book, and I'm always a bit interested in this anyway, is how we get people to realise that the sum of the parts which we've already talked about in the creation of this book <clears throat> translates over to just about everything. And, and you come away from reading this having sat really still and, and sort of observed and undertaken some of the activities that are throughout it, and you realise your deep interdependency on all of the other parts and that we are just one tiny little um, minuscule part of this really complex web. And I think somehow the book has done this beautiful thing where it talks to the 11-year-old in exactly the same way as it talks to the 50-year-old the or it talks to those that are science-leaning or it talks to those that are creative-leaning and um, you can come away with that sense of whole. And it's that thing that I think I'd really love to explore with you a little bit more and, and what that looks like in your life, how, how you create a life that makes you feel like you are servicing the needs of all of the parts. Yeah, look, I, I, mean, I, I really do believe there's an urgent need for us to connect with nature in various ways better. There's, there's so many good reasons to do it. Um, you know, the, the wellbeing benefits are pretty well established that if you get the chance to get outside and um, enjoy or connect with nature in whichever way works for you, it's pretty important. One, one of the things that's important there that is striking for me is there's lots of different reasons to get out there and do it. And you don't have to like them all, but, you know, sometimes <laughs> it could be you like exercising. Sometimes it could be because you're just curious. You really want to get out and learn more about the natural world. Other people might just want me time it's a perfect place to really get outside and be by yourself um you can do it socially as well um you know if, if you like drama there's heaps of stuff in there we sort of put that together at the end of the book but mm. you know in terms of there's a, a lot of reasons you don't have to like them all but there is a need for us to get out and probably you know in self it's in our self-interest to, to do that in terms of the sum of the parts um i think one of the things that's important is that there's lots of different ways you can perhaps enjoy being outside. One of the things that's striking about Australia for me is um, I look at, say, places like New Zealand and the United States where people that would have an, talk about an interest in, in, in naturalist sorts of things are often people like hunters and fishers. I think we've got to disconnect with that kind of community in Australia. And I think probably finding a way to bring that that, that group together is, is, is something that would be really useful in terms of um, just looking at the breadth of ways that people enjoy it. You mentioned 11-year-olds and 50-year-olds and sciencey types and non-science types. Um, you know, look, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really excited to hear you say that about because I've spent, I spent, you know, not anymore but 12, 15 years coaching cricket and footy. Um, so talking to 11-year-olds and beyond, and I think they're an important, mm. they're a really important group of people. I think we underestimate um, our youth quite significantly. I I'm currently involved in some projects to try and find ways in some socially disadvantaged parts of, of Sydney to find good reasons for kids to get out and re-explore nature. These are some of the really locked down parts of Sydney that are still probably coming back after the, the COVID-19 lockdowns. And I realise, I think it's just, um, you know, I, I think it's really important that we don't underestimate or speak down to those kids. They're super smart and super fun to talk mm -hmm. to. They, they, they do look at the world through different eyes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I suppose I'm thinking of coaching here. Um, you do need to be patient sometimes and realise that they're not always going to be on the same page. But um, it's really fun. And then and to just to, just to see that um, 
there's something in this, for, I think, for most people. Now, that, that age group that you've mentioned too is also really important. There's a fascinating body of work that talks about a thing called the adolescent dip, which is kind of a, a global phenomenon which suggests that around 12 or 13, kids have a relatively high connection to nature, go through a, a bit of a dip in what they really um, feel. That they, There's a whole range of ways that we can measure this, but at some we've done it for people in Sydney and it's a really common um, pattern and obviously it's related to shifting to, to high schools, puberty kicking in. Mm-hmm. But that's a, I think there's a, a, there's a real benefit to find ways to in, encourage kids to enjoy the outdoors, however, whichever way they want, whether it's biking, walking, watching, all of those things. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, the sum of the parts, I've lost count of the number of times that people have seen something that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. And that just starts a conversation about anything from an unusual insect crawling across their garden through to, I don't know, um, giant orange wasps dragging paralysed huntsmen behind them. Mm-hmm. This time of year, um, it's it's spring. We've got a lot of migratory um, cuckoos coming back into the city. So these birds are going to lay their eggs in the nests of other birds. And there's an awful lot of noise around that activity. Like, you know, yeah. And it's just sort of, just for, you know, if, again, if you're outside and you, you have those conversations, it's really fun. And I've I, I found that when you, that little bit of knowledge, that gateway knowledge is such a great way to kickstart finding the bits you like, whether it's bugs or birds or plants or, or, or just, you know, enjoying the whole vibe. I mean, sometimes it's not specific things. It's just Being you're outside it. and you think, oh, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I wonder too, is citizen science got a, a part to play in this? I feel like it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a gateway drug because it, it gives people access to something that they are contributing towards something that is bigger than them. And you know, it suddenly feels tangible. It suddenly feels like I'm not a scientist because I don't have a PhD, but I can actually participate in something that's worthwhile. Yeah, I think it's this capacity for people to participate in, in data collection and, and science broadly has been a really nice part of, 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 a, of a shift in the last 10, 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also can sometimes just give people a good reason to get outside because sometimes mm-hmm. with some, a lot of the citizen science um, approaches um, get you to record your observations on your phone, you get some reports back on what you've seen and how, what other people have seen, so it almost becomes... A bit of a game to see more things than your other yeah, people. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. From a scientific perspective, one of the things that's blown us away is I'm involved in a project called Big City Birds, which is where we're looking at um things like brush turkeys, cockatoos, corellas, and, and ibis in cities, and just getting people to report what they're seeing and where they're seeing these birds. And um, it's given us the capacity to look at some really fascinating behaviours. Some colleagues from Germany um, have worked on looking at bin opening. Um, with, with, with John, who's a part of the team, how these cockatoos are going and learning how to open um, wheelie bins and, and communicate that information to each other. Yeah. One of my, our projects on brush turkeys has people recording where these animals are. Now, these are an animal that's returning back to the city after oh, probably being away for almost 100 years after a big decline in the Depression, and they've sort of recolonised the city for, for a range of reasons. And what we're finding is that they're doing some extraordinary things with respects to how they're moving through the city. They're, there's a lot of individual differences. And because we've got individually marked turkeys, we're finding that we've got some unbelievably adventurous animals and some fairly, um, um, what, what, what do you call it when you're, you're comfortable with your life? Some animals that are just okay with where they're at and they don't move around. But we've got some animals that are moving 
15, 20 kilometres throughout what looks like a, a hostile environment to look for places to build their mounds. And what's important for us is that we would not have been able to do this work without the eyes and ears of the people mm-hmm. who were helping out and contributing. And it's just, it's great to to share that. Um, it's great to it's great to see what happens when it's something as simple as someone seeing an animal going, oh, that's interesting, and knowing that you can take a photo, upload it to mm. uh, the app. Well, no, that actually that actually changes our way of thinking. It, it's actually advancing our knowledge, and it's it's also just nice too because you sort of with, with some of the individually marked birds, you almost you, know, you almost find a connection with them. You, you start you know you know that number ninety seven <laughs> losing this part of the town, but it's moved over to someone else's garden and. So the individually marked birds give people a, a deep connection to an individual rather than, than just a species. But, um, yeah, I think this, a lot of the citizen science um, or participatory um, approaches are just really fantastic for being that gateway that you mentioned, this, this, this thing that can open. It's not just going out and, you know, providing data for people because you, you, you've all of a sudden got a little bit of an investment in where those data goes, and that's where it's really critical that it's not just a a dead end kind of reporting thing, but you actually get the chance to see mm. what the final mm. products are like. So we end up spending a fair bit of time on on local Facebook groups or, you know, in, on social media, just trying to um, make sure that the work's shared as widely as possible. Because I think it's, you know, this, you know the, 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 the days of research being done for research's sake and being done in isolation, I think well, they should be over if they're not over now. But with urban ecology and with some of the things that... Um, well, not only the people that you know, the taxpayers' money is paying for a lot of this research. For, from a, if you're looking at it from a transactional perspective, but I'm just, I just think people are genuinely interested in what's happening in in their world, and it's just really critical that we we do a better job of, of letting them know what we're what we're learning. You know, because we, we know so little about so much, Jade. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. we, you know we might pretend to know stuff, but there's so many animals and plants where we're just, you know, trying to work out how they're surviving in our cities and how they're thriving in our cities is really, it's a really nice part of the job. It's, you know, because of course we don't know so much. So the citizen science things are just a great way for us to sort of um, have an excuse to go out. But also I just think it's really important to realise it's not just um, a pastime, it's something that's actually changing how we look at the natural world, which is really, I think, quite priceless. And it's giving agency to every one of us to become an urban field naturalist. You know, who doesn't want to be that? I want to be that. <laughs> yeah, although we, we did have an early comment that people were mistaking the word naturalist with naturist, and we thought, um, which mm-hmm. refers to those, um, uh, you know, nudist colonies and the like. So we, we, we realised that we needed to be really clear on the the urban field naturalist part of the The combination of the two sets a fairly stark image in my mind. Uh, It's it's not for me to judge, Joe, but, you know, we're very much focused on the observing the natural world part of this one. With or without clothes is completely up to you. (laughs) Um, And we talked a minute ago about um, the young people and how we've lost our inclination to actually he- see life through their lens and hear them. And as the the age of people um, or as people's um, average death rate has increased, what it's meant is we've, we've taken the focus of our young people's valid- validated opinions. And I sometimes have conversations with 
even 10 or 11 year olds that give you such stark insight into what they're observing that you think an adult was never ever going to be in a position to make that observation because we're so caught up with everything with the ego mainly but with everything else that's going on in our life that we don't actually um, find the time to sit and observe whether an animal is in its absolute natural state or whether it's in the moment or whether or not it's pondering something bigger and I, I often think if we could find ways to give our young people a voice and I talk a lot on this pod about ritual and the fact that um, you know pretty well every ancient peoples has come from a uh, natural environment based ritual or rite of passage process and we just don't have that anymore so if we were to reinstate rituals in our urban environments for our young people what could that look like i think i think the best way to reinstate some of those rituals are probably to try and make sure that they're ones that kids really want almost a bottom-up approach to seeing to finding when one of the rituals i'd like to see is letting kids loose a little bit more to enjoy and explore themselves that comes with risks in its own right but that's been a time-honored way that um you know the the path to adulthood has involved um you know working you know work the the exploratory the enjoying and the observations because i mean you if you i mean with really young kids for instance i think their, their capacity to see small things and watch them and focus on them is so much um better than people of my age Look, in, in, in terms, I mean, in, in terms of, of ritual, I, I think there's just such a the, the disconnections that come from being in a highly urbanised um, world. I mean, that some of those, those really classically, you know, beautiful places we go to visit, like quite often from a natural. If you're going on a, a, a holiday that's got a, an ecological vibe to it, you'll travel large distances to some extraordinary places. I think we've probably got to work harder to find the extraordinary in, in the ordinary everywhere around us. And I, I don't know how you might build that in, into a ritual, but I think part of it is just um, realising that there's something to gain from from watching, observing and, and, and sharing what you're doing. So I don't, I don't know how, you, I mean, you know, I don't know how you, it, my, my, my gut feeling is that formalising things is really hard. There's, there's such an, again, my, my experience from, you know, hanging around with kids, a lot of it comes through coaching, and I think some of my most coaching kids sports. And one of one of the most successful things that's ever happened to me is has been trying to listen better and and make sure that what I'm doing is working for them. In there, because what I, what I thought worked for me as a 12 year old wasn't going to work for the 12 year olds I was coaching. So you know, I, I, I think you I, you know I, I work at a uni. I'm very lucky that I, I see a lot of youth who are smart hardworking, and motivated and then you know i see that through my kids and my kids friends but i also see it's it, it's it, you know i think every generation can has, has um will do two things one is they'll be criticized by the people that are older than them yeah. and they'll tell you that it's, it's it's really hard i think it is really hard to be a kid at the moment um mm. you know concerns about being overconnected, concerns over being um um, so, so overconnected in terms of social media, and so some of the things where there's some reason, you know, some reasonable evidence now that, that their capacity to be resilient is being affected by the constant feedback and the connections and the fears of missing out. I don't know if it's a ritual, but I, I think finding a way for them to 
explore, you know, be alone or be with their friends in the natural world. And when I say the natural world, that could be a park, a garden, a bit of bushland. I think you you, you take what you, you get with that. It's some, in many parts of, of, of the planet, you, you don't have much choice. It's going to be, you know, a, you know, a, a bunch of ibis hanging around a local park. But you can find things in those places that are really good. I think that's a really hard question, Jade. I really don't know the answer to, you know, because I understand very much where the ritual part's coming from, but I think that the, the kids are, I know really respond well to getting some ownership of some of their journey and um, maybe that's sort of um, a bit hard because at 11 or 12 it's hard to know what your journey should be, but, mm. yeah. Yeah, you're not yeah. given a very long rope at 11 or 12 these days, are you? I don't think so. I think, I think it's really, you know, you've got, you know, you know, there's, there's so much organised activity. You know, you've got parental anxieties where we, we get up and I've got three boys and you can, it can become a bit of an arms race when you're worried about how you're doing in maths, how you're doing at school, are you enjoying, you know, is your sport going well, if that's your thing, is you, you, know, you know, why did you drop music, why did you drop languages? I mean, I have many middle-aged regrets, but dropping language and music back in the, um, the 80s, I really wish I'd stuck with both of those. I've come back to music, but um, yeah, you know, just all those things that you, you try and give that advice to. So I, I think the kids find it. I think it's really hard. I think it's really difficult to um, to to have a one size fits all. What I what I do think though is finding ways to exploit the opportunities, and that that there is a there is a. I said that there's an adolescent dip in terms of people connections to nature dropping around at twelve or thirteen. One of the things that's really critical there is it's coming from a pretty high level. Kids are far more connected than adults typically. Um, and, you know, maybe finding a way to help them explore which bit works for them, whether that's mountain biking or walking or being a bird nerd. I don't think it works or if it's fishing. It really doesn't matter. I think it's just it's got to be the one that works for you. I think there's so many ways to do it. My, my, you know, I think, I think the, the benefits of the slowing down and observing and, you know, trying to embrace a bit of the naturalist tradition are, are really big, but it's, it's not for everyone. Some people, you know, some kids just need to get out there and, and do stuff, you know. Yeah, 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 stay busy. And the, the ability to um, give them agency through knowledge is exactly what this book enables. You know, really everyone, you could flick, anyone could flick through it and come away with one or two pearls of wisdom that gives you the ability to interpret and interact with the natural world in a way that works for you. And so there's definitely no one size fits all. If um, you were to reframe your the pattern or the rhythm of your world, of your life, um, and you could do just one thing that would make you, that would enable you to connect more strongly with the urban environment, what would it be? I'd probably try and practice what I preach a bit more and, and, and the slow down part of it, the, um, it's slow down and watching. I just think there's so much happening. It's, it's, it's like some of the better stuff on Netflix. There is so much happening in nature when you stop and, and, and take the time to watch. So if it, if it was me, I, I, I'm, you know, I think like many of us, we get bogged down in the day-to-day and in the, in, in the, the everyday, you know, morass of I need to finish this, I need to do that. Um, I, I, I've often found that just that that sitting down and enjoying and constantly learning, I mean, that's the... The, the beauty of this is that, you know, you're going if, to, if, if you get enthused about this, you, you're going to go to your grave not knowing an awful lot of stuff because it's just so much we don't know and we mm-hmm. so much to learn. And I think it's just, 
it, it keeps you a bit, every day you're learning new stuff. And that's probably one of the things that really sort of drives part of you know, my, my enthusiasm and just trying to learn that sometimes the best way to do that is to, you know, you're almost doing it by not doing anything, by just taking that time to relax and not feeling guilty about it. I think it's, you know, relax, watch and observe. And then, you know, I, you know, I'm always surprised when you talk to people about some of the stuff at how there is a latent interest in the world. And it's just sometimes we, we, we've, we've forgotten that. A lot of us as kids had that interest in animals and plants and what was happening and it takes a little time to rekindle it. So I don't know if that you, you didn't get one thing then, Jade. I'm sorry, but it was just... Um, no, that's that, that, all right. Reigniting the childhood curiosity I think is yeah. one thing. I think we just need to, to go back to something that we must have intuitively understood to be important as a child before we got distracted. Yep. And, um, you know, and, and if, you, you know, if, if, if you spend some time sitting around watching kids, you'll really, you know, that, that, that joy and that curiosity, it, it's real. And it's just so nice to see, you know, whether it's, you know, you see them playing with a bug or, or you, know, st- you know, staring at a caterpillar. It's just, it's genuine. It's authentic. And, you know, it's just, and it's just nice. It's just really nice to watch. It's just a, a really good feeling, I think, to see that in action. I remember when our kids were little, we lived about 2.2 k's out of the the centre of our little town and um, when the kids were about two and a half, I often used to walk them into town and I remember saying to mum once, look, I've got to go because if I don't go now, I won't get them into town and back again before dark. And mum said, you've got about four or five hours before dark. I said, no, in all honesty, that's how long it takes because Bertie stops at every ant and every bug and every difference in stick and every difference in leaf pattern and he observes it and, and acknowledges it and I never give him the time and I still don't really to actually to to engage with it in the in the way and at the pace that he would like to and there's so much to be learned from those little tiny moments of curiosity that are sparked by two-year-olds yeah it it is remarkable just seeing that and it really is this capacity to look at the world and see the little things that you just Mm -hmm. walk past every time and it's funny that you should say that because I've been on on field trips with um people that study ants and you know they literally move about 10 meters an hour because you know there's so many was it 20 quadrillion ants there's a some recent work has estimated how many are out there and it's just like you don't want to miss it that's how that's how, you know, literally their, their day job is that's how they we have to study them and, and but it, I, mean, I, and I appreciate it with kids though, and, and, and it's hard though because we often don't see what they're seeing and it's just um and, and I, I think the thing that's marvelous is that they're not just looking and seeing, they're also asking why. I mean, anyone who's a parent has heard that oh. question several times, I imagine. <laughs> um, or my, my kids did. So, um, yeah. And, 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 and why is such a great question to ask? Because, you know, why is the ant doing this? I mean, an ant's even, you know, one of the questions about ants that I love is um, someone will see a worker ant and someone will ask me, oh, why is he doing that? And I get to go, oh, she actually. And it's just, you know, it's a bit smug, but it's very satisfying because, um, the way ants are organised, that the workers are all female, and it's just um, that opens a whole conversation about the evolution of social sociality amongst insects. But you know, maybe that's just being a bit of a jerk and being smug and showing off that I know that the worker ants are girls and not boys. <laughs> no, I think it's a great stat that should be shared with more, and then we might appreciate the role of them a little more. Oh, it's it's quite funny when you're giving public talks when you point out that all the all the workers. In the in the ant and the bee communities are a female half your well, audience not knowing. I had a feeling that the bee worker, the drones are all female too, aren't they? 
the 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 the, 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 the worker bees are female. The drones, the males are just they're basically there. The drones and males that are just basically their jobs just to get together and find the, the, the a, a, a female, a, a fertile female, a new queen, and mate with her. They don't really do anything of substance. And then you know, you, you, you're, you know, all the men shift uncomfortably in their seats when you point out that that's you know the women are doing all the work or women, the female bees. Yeah, you got to be a little bit careful about being too um applying too much of our human worldview to the animal world because there's a lot of weird stuff that happens there, Jay. But I think that that female work is driving, you know, the ant and the bee world is really, it's a lot of fun to share that stat just because, I mean, it's a good fact too. But it's just, it's, there's, there's a bit of biology that, that ties into it. But ultimately it's just, just not, it's just good to know. And then if you're, the, if you're that personality that likes to correct your friends, well, they might not stay <laughs> friends that long, but I mean, you know, that's just, you know, that's just part of the fun. So. That's right. I'm intrigued by the way we do that. We all say that. I say it almost every day. Oh, it looks like she's trying to rain. And my husband will say, she is not trying to rain at all. It may rain and it may not, but no one's trying to do it. <clears throat> Don't personify yeah. the weather. We, I think we all do it. As humans, we have an instinct to um, personify everything around us, including, oh. you know, our cats and our dogs and our, uh, all our pets. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I think it makes it easier to to either connect with them, also tell their stories a bit. But I mean, I, I think well, I, I know my pets are pretty much they're, they're kind of like the kids, but we treat them better. I think you know, in terms of um, you know, we don't we don't get angry with them. And sorry, that's apologies to any of the boys watching or listening. Um, yeah, no, but you know, I think I think that's just you know, it, it is it is part of the way that you know we anthropomorphize, and it's just. You know, it's and it's kind of fun too sometimes, isn't it? When you're, you know, when you, you know, because I, 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 and again, we shouldn't probably gender it, but we, yeah, we do. You know, we definitely, I definitely do. I don't know if anybody else that's listening is in that boat, but I, I definitely give everything a, a gender, whether I do it intentionally or not. I'm not sure. Is there anything else about um, the Urban Field Naturalist Project or this particular guide to creatures in your neighbourhood that I haven't asked you about that I should have, so that you can share more detail or yeah, look, I, I think one that's been really surprising for me has been some of the exercises that Zoe put together on journaling and 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 and, and sketching. And I think I'm a terrible drawer, and I was really resistant to those exercises. But she's taken me on a couple of uh, yeah, journeys to sort of like try it. And it's 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 really it's not it's not an exercise in, in art or drawing. It's a it's a way of being in the moment or, or mindfulness essentially and the way it's done is just through holding up your piece of paper and keeping your, your pencil there and drawing what you see and um, I was really blown away by the the, the, the way it changed how I had a, a, a switch got flicked on for me in terms of oh this is actually a really useful thing to do because I thought sketching I'm, I thought sketching was for really good artists to make sure they get a great example of the the bird or the ant or the plant and and um so that that that, that I'm comfortable with the mindfulness that comes from just being out there, but these tools can actually help you just sort of be in the moment and forget the other the other stuff that might be going on. So, you know, my 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 stuff was very much about the the nuts and bolts of the animal world, but when I saw the 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 activities and what could be done with them, it, 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 again, it just really opened um, my eyes a bit. So that's probably part of the project that sort of really um, I wouldn't have seen coming at all and, and and I think my, my better acceptance of what field philosophers and designers bring to things um you know I'm, I'm a lot more open-minded than I think I would have been I, I, you do get very hardwired I think in this in in in, in academia and I think with, with how we do things and how we think 
Mm. So, well, yeah, it's really. It's a that gets in the way of what we should naturally be able to lean into through our evolution and our ecological connection, isn't it? Yeah, it, it does. And the, the other part is it's, it's probably got me thinking heaps and more about what are the other parts of the, of the everyday, you know, the stuff that we live with that we should be talking more about. That's probably, you know, that's probably been the other thing where I realised, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a massive fan of insects and spiders, for instance. And I, I just think that we, we, we scratch the surface, surface of sharing some of the, the amazing bits of their biology. And we try. We, I mean, there's a lot of people that do it with great passion and enthusiasm, but trying to get out into the broader world and just have everyone know just how vital these animals are for our way of life. And just, you know, the, the pollinators are the great example. You know, we, we, we are so dependent on them for our food security and for our way of life. And, you know, it's, it's just really just making sure everyone knows that even if you don't, even if bugs or spiders give you the heebie-jeebies, we'd be lost without them. And it's just, you know, and a lot of people are accepting of that. Anyone that gets outside for a little while realises just how important they are. So that's, that's probably, yeah, telling, telling the, 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 the mindfulness or the sketching exercises and, the, and, and, and that, gee, we've got a lot more to tell. Mm. Leap out to me, Joe. Mm. Just start asking questions. <laughs>